As we discussed back in chapter 16, Roman citizens were entitled to certain due processes of law. You could not question a Roman by flogging, right? There had to be a trial. There had to be the opportunity for defense. Paul was not a slave and he was not a peasant. He was a Roman citizen by birth and he asserts his legal rights as such. And I think that's worth seeing. There's nothing wrong with Christians making use of what legal rights they have under the laws of their own country. You don't have to go about looking for extra trouble. You don't have to go about looking for the maximum amount of persecution and suffering. If you enjoy legal protections, then by all means, avail yourself of them, as Paul does here. It is a blessing, brothers and sisters, to live under good laws. In fact, Bible scholars often suggest that the reason Luke includes this detail was to reassure Christians who enjoyed the rights of citizenship that it was not a sin to make use of those protections and privileges. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The Apostle Paul's journey through both the Jewish and Roman legal systems provides many useful insights for Christians beginning to face legal complications in our own day. There is a time to suffer at the margins, and there's a time to hold leaders and magistrates accountable to the laws of the land. As we continue to minister and witness in an increasingly hostile culture here in Canada, we will likely find ourselves drawing upon these important narratives far more frequently in the years and decades ahead. Here to walk us through this important story is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 22. You will remember that chapter 21 ended rather abruptly. It's probably one of the least helpful chapter divisions in the entire New Testament, particularly for a format like this. We were hearing about the angry mob that had swarmed upon the Apostle Paul after a rumor was started by some unbelieving Jews from Asia that he had brought an uncircumcised Gentile into the temple. They were literally trying to beat and stomp him to death, when the Roman tribune Claudius Lysias intervened and took custody of Paul, whom he thought was an Egyptian false prophet. Once Paul was able to clear that up, he asked for permission to speak to the mob in an effort to clear the air. Chapter 21 ends with these words. Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush... He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, as I said, that's an odd place to end the chapter. We pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 22. Hear now the word of the Lord. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Paul wrong-foots them here, you might say. Many Jews of the dispersion could no longer speak fluent Hebrew. They generally spoke and wrote in Greek. This is a festival, remember. So the city is crowded with Jews from all over the Greco-Roman world. We were just told this riot was started by some Jews from Asia, from Ephesus. They were 
Jews of the dispersion, meaning they spoke better Greek than Hebrew. They, they generally operated in Greek. Greek was the lingua franca. They did their business in Greek. They spoke to each other in the streets in Greek. Even Philo of Alexandria, probably the most famous Jewish intellectual of the period, was not actually fluent in Hebrew. But Paul was. He was fluent in Greek. He'd been speaking to Claudius Lysias in Greek. But he was also fluent in Hebrew. And that mattered. Because the charge was that Paul wasn't very Jewish. And that he had become a little too Greek. And so he speaks to them in Hebrew. And some of the people accusing him of being too Greek can't understand his flawless Hebrew. Paul is being both conciliatory and a little bit ironic, despite that it was ultimately ineffective here. He speaks to them in Hebrew, and he said, verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So here Paul is sharing his credentials. He's a Jew. He's a Jew of Jews. He grew up in a Jewish family, and he went to the Hebrew Harvard. Gamaliel was the most famous Jewish rabbi of the Hillel school at that time. To have studied the Torah under Gamaliel is like having studied the law under Lawrence Tribe. That means something to people who know something about the law. So Paul's credentials are unassailable. He goes on to say, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. Now, just interestingly, there are three tellings of Paul's conversion story in Acts, and in general, the details are all pretty much the same. Here, however, Paul adds something unique. He says that he asked the Lord another question. He says, What shall I do, Lord? We didn't hear about that in Acts 9. And, and that's just interesting because that's the mark of an authentic testimony. Nobody tells their story the exact same way over time unless it isn't true. You only tell stories exactly the same way if you have memorized them as opposed to having experienced them. So highlight that little phrase and file it away in your brain somewhere for future reference. He continues the story in verse 11. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, 
The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Let's pause there. We, we've talked a few times now about the normal order of things in the Bible. People hear the word, they believe, and are baptized. But here we should probably also see some of the urgency surrounding that. Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away all your sins, calling on his name. So there also seems to be a sense in the text in which all of this should happen in fairly short order. Did you hear the word of the Lord, friend? Did you believe the word of the Lord? Then what are you waiting for? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Baptism's not a graduation party. It's a birthday party. It is the beginning of your walk. It is your initial public declaration of faith. It's like when the doctor spanks your newborn bum and you make your voice heard to the world. That's what baptism is. Hey, Pastor Paul, let me jump in here for a second if I can. First of all, I'm not sure I've ever heard baptism described exactly in that way. Yeah, and I'm not even sure they do that anymore. That's probably not (laughs) kosher nowadays. But the point is that baptism is supposed to follow pretty quickly after spiritual rebirth, as it does seemingly in Paul's story. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Is that fairly normative in Acts, or is that just something for people with more background, like the Apostle Paul and other Jewish converts who would have known all the Old Testament stories and whatnot? Well, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the matter of background or ethnicity. Paul was baptized very shortly after his conversion as a Jewish person with maximum Old Testament background. And then the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 was baptized straight away as well, And he was a Gentile, and there's no mention of him having any connection to the synagogue whatsoever. And then we have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, who is kind of in between those two examples. He was a Gentile with some background, as we see from the fact that he had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was reading Isaiah 53 when Philip encountered him. But in all of those scenarios, the people heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and were subsequently baptized— with very little time passing between steps two and three. Actually, it sounds like Paul's story presents the longest pause in any of those three stories. Yeah, Paul doesn't mention it here, but in Acts 9, Luke tells us that it was three days before Ananias came and visited him. So Paul heard, believed, and was baptized three days later. Whereas the Philippian jailer and the eunuch were baptized 10 minutes later. Yeah, more thereabouts. Okay, so why then do we typically see such long delays between conversion and baptism today, at least in the evangelical traditions you and I grew up in? Well, I think it's because we've all had so many experiences with false conversions or or false professions, I guess it would be better to say. We've all seen someone wave their hand at Jesus in a meeting, and then two weeks later they're back at the bar face down in their own vomit. Mm. And so we've learned to wait for fruit before being confident that a person has been truly converted. And of course, it isn't just from experience that we get that. Jesus talked about that in his parables. He said that there was a person who would respond quickly and enthusiastically, but because there was no real depth of understanding there, as soon as the sun came up, would fall away. And that's the parable of the sower, right? Yeah, so I think it's good to wait for some fruit. But I'm not sure that makes a compelling argument for delaying baptism. 
Peter didn't tell the crowd on Pentecost Sunday to go away and grow some fruit. Rather, he said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people were baptized by Peter and the disciples that very day. Yeah, exactly. So I think when we delay baptism, we perhaps betray that we haven't properly understood what baptism is. Baptism is not a reward for growing some fruit. Baptism is our initial profession of faith. It is saying what we believe and introducing ourselves to the wider body of faith, whose help we're going to need to grow fruit in keeping with repentance. So I would argue we should probably not separate what the Bible puts together. And in the Bible, we tend to see hearing, believing, and baptizing in a fairly compact package. So practically speaking, if a person hears the gospel on a Sunday morning and they fall under conviction, they repent, they believe, should they get baptized that same Sunday? Well, obviously, we can't make church policy right here on the radio. And I think we would want to avoid an overly wooden application of what we're seeing here. But I can say that we've had several spontaneous baptisms at our church. When we preach the gospel and invite anyone who has heard and believed to come forward. And by the grace of God, we've never not had someone come when we do that. The Spirit always seems to move and prompt people when the table has been set in faith, so to speak. But on the other hand, we also do plan baptism. We've got one scheduled right now, and we'll promote that date, and we'll encourage people to think and to, and to pray and, and to really seek the Lord. So in general, I would say that you can do both, but I would argue that it's probably a good thing for us to tighten up the gap between conversion and baptism in order to be more on side with what we're seeing here in the Bible. And so as to be more careful about how we're positioning baptism in the minds of believers, it's not a graduation party. It's a birthday party. And when we position it that way, I, I think there's just more humility, more dependence, and more honesty, too, about the very understandable immaturity of those undertaking it. All right. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. Thanks for that. Let's jump back into the story now. Mid-speech at verse 17. He says, When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Obviously, Paul did not get to finish his speech. This isn't where he intended to end. This is just where everyone stopped listening. And that tells us a few things. It tells us, first of all, that what these Jews found most offensive about Paul, and by extension, about the Christian faith, was the fact that it was so embracing and so inclusive of Gentile peoples. It wasn't that Paul believed that Jesus was the Messiah. It wasn't that G Paul believed that Jesus had, had died for our sins. It wasn't that Paul believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. It was that Paul believed that Jesus had done all of this to become the long-promised blessing to the world. Had all that been done just for them... 
They might have accepted it. But the idea that their religion was preparatory, that their purpose was missional, and that their mandate had been assumed and completed by Jesus Christ, and that their community must now be overwhelmed with Gentile converts, that was the bridge too far. That was where they stopped listening. They'd heard enough. They had heard the point of Paul's message. They identified the trajectory implied in his sermon, and they rejected it. Verse 23 says, And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So let's pause here and state the obvious. The tribune obviously spoke fluent Greek. He probably also spoke fluent Latin. But as I mentioned, Paul has been speaking in Hebrew, and the tribune almost certainly was not fluent in Hebrew. So that is why he intends to examine Paul by flogging. He needs to understand why everyone in the crowd just lost their mind. Verse 25 says, But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. As we discussed back in chapter 16, Roman citizens were entitled to certain due processes of law. You could not question a Roman by flogging, right? There had to be a trial. There had to be the opportunity for defense. Paul was not a slave and he was not a peasant. He was a Roman citizen by birth and he asserts his legal rights as such. And I think that's worth seeing. There's nothing wrong with Christians making use of what legal rights they have under the laws of their own country. You don't have to go about looking for extra trouble. You don't have to go about looking for the maximum amount of persecution and suffering. If you enjoy legal protections, then by all means, avail yourself of them, as Paul does here. It is a blessing, brothers and sisters, to live under good laws. In fact, Bible scholars often suggest that the reason Luke includes this detail was to reassure Christians who enjoyed the rights of citizenship that it was not a sin to make use of those protections and privileges. Thanks be to God. The story concludes in verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. In a sense, this is one of the great hinges in the book of Acts. This is one of the great hinges in Christian history. From this point on, Paul is no longer a free man. His great missionary journeys are now behind him as far as the book of Acts is concerned. 
But of course, that's not to say that his apostolic ministry has concluded. Paul will make use of this long imprisonment and this very drawn-out legal process to write letters, letters to churches that we continue to read and to treasure to this day. And in addition, he will preach and defend the Christian gospel before soldiers, officers, tribunes, governors, and even kings and queens. As is often the case, what man means for evil, the Lord turns to good. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, I want to go back to the matter you raised there in the program audio about making wise use of our legal protections as citizens. The Apostle Paul was not averse to suffering. If that was the price he had to pay for preaching the gospel, in 2 Corinthians 11.24, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes last one. So, I mean, the brother knew how to take a beating, but here he says, Hold up! Are you sure that what you're about to do is entirely legal? So, what gives? Why did Paul sometimes submit to these sort of abuses and then other times not? Yeah, that's a great question. And one that I think a lot of people are wrestling with as we try to figure out how to relate to a suddenly hostile government. The first thing we need to recognize is that we need to be careful to compare apples to apples. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, which you cited there, Paul is referring to the typical synagogue punishment of 40 lashes minus one. Whereas here in Acts 22, he claims his legal protections as a Roman citizen when he was about to be examined by flogging. So those are two very different situations. Paul's Roman citizenship did not mean anything when it came to the discipline protocols in a Jewish synagogue. But they did mean that he was not allowed to be flogged without a proper trial. He had the right to speak to his defense. He had the right to examine the evidence brought against him. He had the right to what we would call due process. Yes, we talked about that back in Acts 16, as I recall. Yeah, in that story, Paul and Silas were, again, by a magistrate, by a Roman magistrate, beaten without a trial. And Paul holds the local authorities accountable for that. He forces them to formally and publicly apologize, which most commentators suggest he did to establish a legal precedent that would have resulted in more operating space for Christians in that region in the months and years following. Exactly, and uh, that's the point of application for us today, I think. I heard recently that Christians in Scotland and New Zealand successfully challenged their government in terms of some of the restrictions that were levied during COVID. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? I would say that's a great example of doing the right thing the right way. It's a good thing to say to your government, hey, is what you're about to do actually legal? It's a good thing to ask the courts to review a government decision. Sometimes governments overreact. Sometimes they overreach. And in most free societies like ours, there is a mechanism for putting a check on that. And there's nothing wrong at all with making use of that, particularly if it results in increased operating space for those coming up behind us. All right. So practically speaking, if a pastor is arrested for preaching what the Bible has to say on human sexuality, for example, would it be wrong for him to get a lawyer and to fight the legality of his arrest through the court system? Absolutely not. And I suspect we may see that happen in the next few years here in this province. I wouldn't be surprised at all if a pastor was arrested for saying what the Bible says about gender, for example. 
And in that situation, I think it would be entirely appropriate to question the legality of that arrest and to ask the courts to review whether those actions were appropriate given the provisions in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That would be to do exactly what Paul does here in the book of Acts. By holding magistrates accountable to Roman law, he served to set a precedent that kept the door open for other gospel preachers coming up behind him. But then, as we get deeper into the story, we're going to see that holding magistrates accountable to the law doesn't mean acting disrespectfully. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you get the outcomes that you're hoping and praying for. Sometimes Caesar's sword falls on the neck of the preacher, and this story will have some counsel for us as well in terms of how to deal with that. All right. I'll look forward to hearing more about that in the weeks and the episodes to come. As always, friends, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.